Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, the podcast series that talks to people who stand up, speak out, or challenge us to think a little differently. My guest today is crime journalist and investigative editor Nicola Talent. Nicola's work intrigues me and today we talk about the public's obsession with crime. Nicola has had several best-selling books and her most recent project, podcast The Witness, was one of the most listened to of the year. I prefer to turn a blind eye to some of the darker parts of life, but as you'll hear us talk... Society needs to do more than simply turn a blind eye. We need to understand the many factors which influence a life of crime and recognise our part in it rather than continuing with an us and them mentality. Something I really admire about Nicola's writing is that while it is obvious she abhors the criminals she reports on, there is often a vein of empathy flowing through her writing as... She sets the scene of impoverished areas with a lack of funding and infrastructure, of drug addiction and vulnerability. She hopes to give people an understanding of not only how organised crime occurs, but why. Far from seeing herself as a change maker, Nicola does what she does with intent. But as you'll hear, to her, it's just a job like any other, one she found herself interested in and good at, but it doesn't consume her. Often I've seen the front pages of the tabloid newspapers heralding a new crime story or adding to another, and I've wondered if it's making celebrities of those involved. But after talking to Nicola, I have somewhat softened my resolve. There's real heart at the centre of what Nicola does and a want to tell people's stories. I hope you enjoy. So Nicola Talent, you're very welcome to Changemakers. I'm absolutely fascinated by you and the work you do. So thank you for bringing your brain in for me to (laughs) pick apart and question you on. More than welcome. So could we start with you growing up, for example? I've read that at 12 you knew you wanted to be a reporter. So what Mm. do you remember about that? Very little, really very little. I must have been watching something on the television because I definitely didn't have a deep sense of it. I just knew I wanted to do it. I'd say that Superman thing was on or something. Or could it have been, I was thinking while I was reading it, uh, April O'Neil from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, as a lot of us thought she was pretty damn cool. <laughs> could have been like it could. Well, it was obviously something as, you know, as fickle as that, I'd say. Definitely. I just like the, the idea of it. And like I wasn't even the Sunday Times used to come into our house and I would grab the Funday Times, I remember, and then the magazine. And Zoe Heller had a column. Now that might have been later, a little bit later, not when I was 12, but a little bit later. And she was in New York and she was taking Prozac every day and she was very funny. But I used to just eat that up. I loved that whole idea of you're getting a little sense of her. But I don't think like most people, I went through news pages religiously or was glued to the news. Most journalists don't go into journalism because of that. I think they go in because they want a bit of adventure. And... 
do you remember becoming aware of crime? Yeah, I remember being very interested in crime, very interested in crime. You see, so this was the 1980s and I don't know, you're probably a good bit younger than me, but there was this obsession during the 1980s with devil worshipping. And there was all these weird crime magazines you could buy because, of course, we didn't have the Internet. So you could buy these crime magazines in shops and news agents and detective and this that and the other. And I used to buy a few of them and cut them out. And I was obviously an odd child, I think. Because I was thinking while I was writing that question, mm. you know, what would my answer be to that? Mm. And I think when it really came to true crime growing up in Ireland, it would have been the troubles in the north and that being mm. on our TV screen all the time and being desensitised to it, not being shocked by a report of another bomb. I do remember the penny dropping in my head. I think it was maybe around the Oma bombing. There was something about that mm. that really captured people. I think it was the lady who was pregnant with the twins. I was actually working at that stage during that Oma bombing because I remember going up to Dundalk and we were looking for the bombers basically at that time. So I was working then. But I do remember all the news about the North. I remember the border fox, Desi O'Hare, being on the run when he had kidnapped the dentist, John O'Grady. And I remember going down to the Wicklow Mountains. My brother was going camping or something and my mother was dropping him. And she took me in the car and I remember the two of us out in the middle of, you know what it's like out that Sally Gap way. There isn't a light. And I remember sitting in the car going, I'm the protection here. Like, but it was scary. Um, so, yeah, there was kidnappings and there was those kind of things going on. But you were only vaguely aware of them, really. You know, they weren't totally at your door. Um, I didn't grow up somewhere that, I, you know, I grew up in a very kind of middle class area and it wasn't something that was, you know, literally outside the front door. But, yeah, you were aware of that sense of criminality. There was this growing sense of drug use and certain places you'd be warned not to go, like the stairs and the shopping centre and things like that, where there was these there was these drug addicts. And I remember probably being irrationally scared of drug addicts, you know, and that is quite the norm because, you know, even you speak to people who lived in areas that were heavily populated by people using drugs, like even in Ballymun and everywhere else, they were afraid of the addicts. So there was that sense. I think there was probably the whole AIDS phenomenon was there and you were kind of like they were to be scared of you know they were they were scary they were going to do something to you and um, I suppose that comes out of the idea that there's desperation in heroin addiction that mm. what you're taught is it's different to recreational drugs once you have it you need it and you're willing to literally sell your grandmother to get it so if you're walking by with your handbag it yeah. could easily be snatched off you we'll get into your thoughts on drugs in a moment mm. but when did you first get into reporting because it wasn't crime initially is that right well not immediately but I did kind of want to do that I remember wanting to do that and sort of finished did two years in College of Commerce and Rath Mines, which was the only course in the country at the time it was hard to get into but once you got into it um you kind of got a job, like guaranteed. There was sort of papers where newspapers were taking you on as you came out. So, um, yeah, I did that. And then you st I started doing shift work in the national newspapers, which was the norm way in as well. Um, but I covered some local courts, Rathfarnham District Court I used to cover and found that really fascinating. And that was district court level. That was like people caught with a pocket full of heroin or whatever. But I remember just finding that amazing. You'd see 
these young lads coming in, there was always a mother with them or a granny. There was always a woman with them trying to beg a judge not to put them away, give them another chance. You know, they were always promising that they would give it up and that they'd they were on in rehabilitation and they were this, that and the other. And, uh, you know, they are and were the bottom of the ladder, really. But, um, yeah, there was always there was always a woman. There was always, you know, a mother. That's so interesting. Not a dad. No, I never do remember that. I just always remember there was always a mother begging the judge, please give him another chance. Please, he's not all that bad, you know. And they weren't. They were just caught with small fry stuff, you know. Um, you know, you know, teenagers do stupid things and make stupid decisions. And I suppose that criminal justice system, what the mothers were were begging for, which I wasn't really aware of at the time, was they were begging for another chance because they didn't get into that criminal justice system because sometimes when you get into that there's no way back out your first stint in jail you're probably more likely to re-offend re-offend meet other criminals you know and that really shocked me reading your articles reading some of your books that often that's where the real criminality starts like you say Mm. it can be it can be something small but it's like a, a school of of crime in the prison system. How is that so wrong? Well, that's just the way the prison system is, you know. Um, like, you're surrounded by other criminals, obviously. You know, you're not in there with the educated masses. You're you're there with people who a lot of them will have done worse, will have will be more prolific, will be, you know, you've, you're surrounded by predators in the prison system because especially ones with the, who are ambitious to get out, to get going again in whatever their business is. They're looking for young guys, enforcers, people to hold drugs, people to sell them for them, people to drive them. They're looking for every sort of employee. Like, you know, it, it is graduation school for, for young people sometimes when they go in. Unless they're really lucky and they get a short, sharp shock, come back out and have a support system at home, which will keep them on the straight and narrow. But by and large, once you get into that whole system, you're kind of your your path is laid out for you. The fact that you can get drugs into prison, the fact that you can get mobile phones into prison, the fact that crime bosses can still continue mm. dealing their work from a prison cell just boggles my mind, really, in the age of technology and that you can you not have cameras in prison cells is there a privacy issue oh, of course that? there would be of course there would be and you know they have visits and they have they're very very clever usually people at getting around rules because they don't live by rules and i mean if you think even when the pandemic started and the whole world went into chaos and how the name of god are we going to get stuff around and having to keep the transport system and the transport routes open and all the rest of it. And, you know, for example, do you take cocaine? The nightclubs were closed. The pubs were closed. There was an initial feeling, is this going to affect the market? But it didn't. And they just find other ways around things. They can change. They're not operating in the normal world. There is no legislation. There's no rules. There's no banking system. There's nothing they have to wait for to make a decision so they can just change what they do like that and they can get around everything absolutely everything sure there was a big bus there a couple of um maybe it was last year now at this stage but uh they discovered 
a big contraband route into Mountjoy Jail and it was all coming in through the kitchen. And of course, most things do come in through the kitchen of prisons. And you think how many people there are in the jail, maybe 3,000. That's in a lot of people being fed, a lot of, of product coming in and out every day. Um, but they had worked out how to, how to sneak uh, packages onto uh, ordinary and innocent transport systems that were going in and out of the jail. And they were actually taking orders in the same way you'd sit down, go online and maybe order your, you know, your new pair of runners, your, um, you know, your, your tracksuit, whatever the hell it is you want, and it's delivered to your door. They were having the same kind of um, click and buy system in the prisons. They're way more sophisticated than you or I, I can tell you. And, and, and you know. It's like the ASOS packages arriving to the door. That's it. And I, I have sat on radio in my privileged privilege position pontificating how we should view prison as rehabilitation. But I think it's very naive. I do still believe that that's how it should be, but it's a very naive lens to the reality of what's going on. Well, I mean, that's what we do aspire to. That is the whole point of prison. So... Um, anybody who studied criminology um, will study penology, which is the history of the prison system, the history of punishment. And back way back, it started with this barbaric methods of, uh, you know, imprisoning and sometimes torturing people. Actually, if you look at the Taliban regime and Sharia law, that's kind of the sort of how it started. We used to imprison people on boats out in at sea uh, where they were infested with rats and uh, they were worked in hard labor and you know we even if you visit Kilmainham jail and places like that you will see what how people used to be housed or public hangings all of and that o- you know the off with his head that kind of all idea, that mentality public shaming yeah and that whole idea that punishment was you know had to be an eye for an eye sort of a mentality but then as criminology and as thinking develops we come to a place in democratic societies that we believe that the deprivation of liberty and liberty alone is punishment so in other words taking away somebody's ability to walk out the front door to go down to the shop so that deprivation of liberty is what punishment is but you do not deprive them of other assets and other things that a human being needs of fresh air of sunlight of exercise of education all those things have to be given to them in order to try and rehabilitate them. And that's what you aspire to do. Now, you can't just, you know, unfortunately, we can't sprinkle magic fairy dust around Mount Joy Jail and everybody that goes in comes out educated and an ordinary, you know, law abiding member of society. But some do. And for everyone that does, that's a huge success. Lots of people are working in the prisons, artists, you know, historians, lots of people are working with with drug users. Of course, drug use is where it's all a lot of it is is coming from. Um, you know, most people in prisons, most regular offenders, the ones who are back in and out are drug users. And a lot of the crimes surround their, you know, their drug use, their chaotic lives and, you know, what they do when they're either high or looking to buy or sell drugs. That's one thing I've, I've noticed about your writing. You don't glorify the people who are committing these crimes, but you do give a back story and you do give a bit of a backdrop. And a lot of it centers around inner city areas that lack infrastructure, 
And you talk about Dublin in particular, how factories were taken away, jobs were taken away, promises made were not followed through. And it's easier to get your head around somebody living in abject poverty, why they might turn to drug use or be lured by the person in the top of the range car with the fancy watch Mm. offering a quick book. And I, I think that's a really important backdrop for us to think of and and the same Mm. with the people that go into the prison system if they're going to be coming back out to that setup what sort of hope does it give them well that's why it's a wider issue than just you know policing it it's a much wider issue than the committal of crime and how crime groups and gangs emerge is an issue for all of society we can't just sort of say send the guards in there lift them all throw them in prison and that'll sort the problem it doesn't you have to go in with education you have to go in with health care you have to go in with social services you have to go in with governmental development housing um i was only reading an article there um yesterday in the new york times riker island which is a prison um in in new york and a horrific place um, they are going to knock it or, you know, decommission it or whatever and build new prisons in each of the different areas of New York. But they've brought in special architects to sit with social workers to try and, you know, to work out how the building should be. So, you know, that is forward thinking. How can a building help a rehabilitation? Can it be, you know, does everything, does every bit of punishment of crime have to involve the incarceration of somebody or can there be particular parts of prison that people go home during the the day like at night rather if they come in and is it you know do we have an education facility a live-in facility a rehabilitation facility so that's interesting and uh, you know of all places to be citing the states when it comes to the punishment because they are cruel and their sentences are very long but just example on how everything has to be working together um, and, and as a society you can't just go I've an education I'm an architect I've nothing to do with that you know you should be at the table too so back to you for a moment I was interested to read that you made your way to news editor but when yeah. farming <laughs> yeah. out the jobs you were quite jealous of the people heading out and realized mm. no I, I don't want to be in charge, I want to be my own boss and I want to be going out reporting. So when did your studies in, in cr- criminology and your focus on crime journalism really begin? So, yeah, well, it's sort of always stuff start. I just I started very early doing crime. I had those local courts. And then when I was working on the national newspapers, the um, Veronica Guerin had been murdered and they'd gone after Gilligan in a big way. And when I say they, the state had and the special criminal court down was down in Green Street. It was opened up for the first time for organised criminals. So previous to that, it had been there for subversives for the IRA. It's a three judge court. Um, its constitutionality has been tested again and again, but it's robust. And they brought them before the court and there was super grasses within the gang. There was snipers on the roof of Green Street. The city used to be closed off every day as the super grasses, as they call them, were brought to give testimony because they were going to be killed. And yeah, it was kind of exciting. And uh, I liked I liked that. And the outcome of a lot of it was very satisfying when you see people being led away 
to jail for crimes like they had committed Gilligan. John Gilligan wasn't convicted of the murder, but he was led away for a long time for a drug offence. And um, I kind of just continued doing crime from there. And then this awful opportunity came up to be a news editor, which I sort of took for financial reasons because I was offered a lot of money and hated it. Absolutely hated it. And we would have been on the road a lot in those days. So um, I think probably because really when you say the internet wasn't around so much, you feel like a total dinosaur, but it actually isn't around that long. And you wonder how we got anything researched or done. I remember (laughs) using my father as a sat-nav because I used to be constantly going around the country, my late father, God love him. And he used to, I used to ring him. I'm on the M50. I need to go here or I need to go or I'm such and such a place. I'd be constantly in a rush trying to get to a murder scene or something. And he'd pull out the map and he'd tell me which direction to go and which, uh, you know, because there was no sat-nav. I mean, I, I don't know how. If, like, if it wasn't for him, I would, I still can't practically get to the end of my road without putting it on. But yeah, we were on the road because it wasn't as easy to get information and to transmit photographs and stuff like that. So sitting there sending everybody else out, I hated that. I set up an agency, ran that for a few years and then I kind of, you know, I constantly covered crime. That was really my expertise and where, um, you know, I had a little bit of an edge maybe in journalism. So. And you mentioned that you studied the penal system and uh, mm. and the whole theory around that in criminology. What else makes up the, the studies of, of crime? Yeah, it's sort of like a social science. So um, it's basically looking at the whole idea of, you know, nature or nurture, what's happening in society to create crime, what's happening in society to create criminals. How do we handle it? You know, so it's quite a wide social subject, really. And it's not profiling, which I thought it was when I went into it. I was sure that I was going to be able to <laughs> to suss out who and who wasn't a serial killer. But no, it's not that. That's behavioural science, apparently. And it's a big question. Um, but why do you do what you do? What's at the heart of what you do? Now, it's taken me years in my career to understand why I do what I do. Mm. But as a crime journalist or investigative editor, what is your reason for doing it? I suppose primarily it feels like all I can do. I don't know. It just feels like something I just do. It's, it comes very naturally to me to be interested enough to do it and you know, I know there will come a day that that'll be it and I will absolutely walk away and never look back at it. I do know that um, because it's a tough enough gig. Um, but I am still interested enough in people and in their stories to help them tell them or to try and bring the. I think, you know, as you get a little bit older, you can kind of, as you say, you can work out what it is you're actually doing because you stop rushing. And uh, I think I like the whole idea of trying to um, open the minds of middle class society to show them that this is here not because people are scumbags, because we've created an environment to create them. And there is, you know, it sometimes amazes me when sometimes more educated or less educated 
in, in their sort of uh, small world view. You need to sort of open your mind and go places that aren't too comfortable and uh, go into homes where you'd never be and speak to people you never would. And that sort of is an education to me more so than, uh, you know, 100 letters after your name. And it is really interesting. I mean, even with this podcast, it being called Change Makers and talking to people who are looking to make a difference in various areas. Mm. I've kind of hit on most of the big topics within society and each one of them a problem in society as such all boils down to inequality. Mm-hmm. It's so surprising to me that every single one of them is based somewhere along the line with inequality and capitalism. And you're right, this classist view of things is like it's them over there and us over here and people aren't really making the connection. And at the centre of most of the crime you write about are drugs. Yeah. And I think there are people who sit flicking through the newspaper going, that is terrible. And don't make the connection between recreational drug use that they may be involved in. Yeah, d- most definitely. And there's also this great ability of people to go the sweeping statement. You're just glamorizing criminals. I'm not glamorizing any criminals. I'm just telling the truth. It may be uncomfortable. And yes, the truth is exactly that. People who go out and who put their hand in their pocket and who give a hundred quid for a bag of coke so as they can have a better night out, are funding the crime lords who they don't want to exist because they don't actually want these street thugs to become these very powerful drug lords. But that's what happens. They fund murder. They are funding uh, a society that they, they don't want to have to live beside or for it to spill into their communities. And yet they're paying for it. They're funding it. Each person who pays for drugs is funding that. And where do you stand on the legalisation of drugs? Do you think there's always going to be a human need to let go at the weekend? To Once we discovered that grapes could be turned into wine that would send our brain a little crazy, is there always going to be that need in people? Are there always going to be drugs on the street? Does legalisation, looking at other countries that have brought that in, does that reduce crime? Well... Look, I think probably over the next decade or so, we will see the beginning in this country of the legalization of cannabis. And I think everybody's moving towards that. And cannabis is a product that is is grown. It's not synthetic. You know, it can be, obviously. Um, But if controlled and some countries have started the process of trying to wrestle it back from the cartels, there probably always be a black market in any of these things, even if we do legalize them, by the way. But um, I think we're going to see that. Um, you can't just go, oh, legalize it because everybody needs a good time, because actually a lot of drug use is. People who are taking drugs are taking it to reduce pain that they have and traumas. And there is another part of it that, you know, again, we need to bring in non-policing other entities into the into the table because you have heroin users are sick. I mean, heroin isn't a recreational drug. It's a very addictive substance that if people don't take, they will and get extremely sick. Um, cocaine isn't just a substance people take by choice. People can be addicted to it 
they can it can have very negative effects on lifestyles on families on relationships etc and some people take it because they're either lacking confidence or they have something you know deeper within them so that's a whole other argument but um you know and what you have as well is you have a country like Ireland going okay do you know what we're just losing this battle completely let's just legalize the whole lot and bring it in we're going to bring it in we're going to tax it we're going to collect the tax and we'll have it solved but by doing that you have to then purchase that substance from the likes of Colombia where you have impoverished people tortured by cartels where you have farmers who are you know being treated like in a horrendous way you have Venezuelan refugees coming over the border and being forced to work for 10p a week to you know picking the coca leaves so you have this whole industry that is unregulated outside it like would we bring in substances into this country would we would we, would we import them if we knew human rights abuses were going on in the background we wouldn't we wouldn't do it with meat we wouldn't do it with anything else so that, that's a bigger problem so it's kind of like easy to go oh, we should just we should just legalize it but there's a huge big global problem there if if you if you look at that i think cannabis definitely it's it can be grown in ireland obviously very successfully by quite a few growers um so it's a different you know what i mean it could be controlled it can certainly be taxed it makes up about 25% of the billion dollar illegal drug industry so taking back control of that 25% could actually be put to good use in those areas i've spoken about where there's you know addiction problems education problems social issues and try and put it back into into that in a perfect world there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And even as I'm, I'm listening to you describe the realities of the drug trade and the human rights violations that are going on, I have a, a conflict going on in my head where I'm like, why would you want to know that is going on? Why would you want to delve into that? But why wouldn't you? Why would we turn a blind eye to that? Mm. Why would we pretend that life is Disney? Because unfortunately, it's not. And it's great to skip down the road in ignorance. But the reality is somebody has to look and somebody has to report it. Almost oh, definitely. And you don't need to look all the way to Colombia to see human rights abuses. I mean... The street on the streets of Dublin, there are kids living in areas where they are being plucked by predators because there is addiction problems in their own home. There is other issues going on with them, maybe unidentified education issues that they have. They are being seen as vulnerable. They are vulnerable and they're being brought into drug gangs by older 
drug dealers and uh, they're being forced into a life of crime. And, you know, some of them are being lured by an expensive pair of runners. But many of them that I report on end up dead in the runners and they might be still teenagers shot in the head on the side of a street, you know, living in terror, um, absolutely frightened to bits with nowhere to turn. So there's human rights abuses everywhere when it comes to drugs and, you know, people, again, people are funding it without opening their eyes to that. And we look at shocking images of child soldiers with guns strapped across them in other areas of the world. And yet there are, as you say, children armed with weapons Mm. in our own country. Oh, definitely. And I mean, listen, there was a a case there in the last year and there was a hit team, a Kinnahan hit team who had made an attempt on the life of Patsy Hutch, the monk's brother. And they were caught in the middle of it and they were all brought to court. There was nine of them in total convicted. But if you looked at each one of them, I'm not feeling sorry for them, but there was a problem with each single one of them. Some of them had low IQ. Some of them were drug addicts. Some of them were, um, you know, from... They just... They were all actually, ultimately underneath it, once vulnerable children. And they ended up getting brought into this situation. They're being spending the next 10 to 20 years in, in the courtesy of the taxpayer in, in a prison. And um, they were used and abused and they were stupid enough to take up the job um, and in order to make a few bobs, some of them to pay off debts. But they are not top of the chain. They're bottom of the chain. And there's like from sort of working in the in that sort of world of organized crime, it seems to me that while maths wouldn't be my strong point, but if there was a percentage, there's probably about 0.01% at the top of the chain and everybody else is underneath it, lackeys working, you know, being being used, abused and taking the risks. And what about that disconnect we have, the idea that we can teach people about the dangers of, of smoking and the health implications? Mm. And yes, there are still people that, that choose to, to smoke, but the facts are all there about crime about drug use and there was something in me that didn't like when I think it was when we there was talk of people not being able to get on the housing market and it was like well too many of you are buying avocado on toast and and, and lattes and maybe that's because I am middle class and I kind of got defensive but I think there are people who are perhaps buying plant-based milk and a soy latte Mm. but still buying drugs at the weekend why do we have that major Disconnect. Why are people connecting with some bigger picture stuff and not others? Well, I think Coke has a really cool image and it has since it first emerged in Miami in the 1970s. It's just cool. And globally, we haven't challenged that image, I think, from a marketing perspective, because a lot of it is kind of, I mean, you know, it's probably is cool to eat your avocado and toast if you're 17 or 18 or whatever it is. But um, like... A lot of government backed advertising made smoking uncool and it's not really cool to stink anymore, is it? It made drink driving really super uncool. Um, It, you know, 
we we can change as a humanity, but we are we do have to be sort of shamed. And I think while there is a shame associated with using heroin, you don't see people in the pub beside you saying, I'm just going off to to, to shoot up here. Um, and yet you're going to do it off the back of a toilet. Yeah, well, and, you know, it's not really cool, is it? Well, it's just got this cool image. And, you know, that's what has to be tackled, I think. There has to be some sort of a shame associated with it. And OK, you might be pushing it slightly into the background, but um, out of the smoking area. But anyway, you know, it's something I don't have all the answers, but it is it's definitely still got that cool image, Coke. And um, until we can get it deeply embedded, they say you have to tell somebody something three or four times before it it goes in. Um, but, you know, something I don't know. We just have to try and change the image it has. And is that at the forefront why you do what you do? Do you consider yourself someone that is making a difference or years of doing it? Has it hardened you? I really sadly spoke to a social worker friend of Mm. mine who doesn't feel like she really is. She's years in and she just sees the socioeconomic issues that are just so much bigger than the day-to-day working she's doing, as well as the faults with the system within which she is working, yeah. that, you know, she has lost some sort of hope. How do you feel after years working in crime? Um, I just feel a bit of a responsibility to try and um, do something a little bit more than just present facts, like with, with the journalism I do. I try and make people emotive about a story and make them feel something about it which is quite why I really quite like audio the new sort of the podcasting while the states have been at it a lot longer than us we are experiencing a little bit of a love affair with audio and podcasting and I think that um, and I work with you know on some documentaries and stuff like that and I think that's a very powerful medium as well but it's just to try and just make people sit up and go, oh, my goodness, actually. He's a nice guy, you know, and he's got something to say. And that for me happened with The Witness, which is a podcast I did um, about Joey O'Callaghan, a guy who'd been groomed into a drug gang and ended up working for a big, a big drug lord. And he you could have sort of pushed him aside as being just another just another drug dealer. But when he can tell his story for himself and people can connect with him and I've just had so many people come up to me and say like, you know, really, really people I wouldn't have expected and say, oh, my God, his story has really touched me or his story. And his story isn't it it, it is a unique story in one way, but in another way, it's just a voice from a, a place where we don't usually hear the voices. You know, we're very used to hearing middle class voices in media and, you know, people with titles and people with education and all the rest of it. But being able to bring or to give somebody else a voice from a different class, from a different place and to to make that story sort of stay with people or maybe change them a little bit. I don't know. Maybe they won't be as quick to dismiss everybody from a certain social class again or maybe they will look on them with different you know maybe if you consider that it's not really fair 
that one person just by virtue of where they were born by their parents and their um, postcode has a, advantages over another, then maybe it makes us a little bit kinder, a little bit more understanding. Um, and there's a lot of good that can be got out of people if we accept them as equals. And I had a lot of people say to me about the witness. Mm. This is a this is a must listen. Um, and I just wonder, I think you're right, because so many people said, wait until you hear this guy's story. There's mm. so much empathy for him and his story. But will it ultimately change their behaviour around recreational drug use? Do you think that listening to a podcast sometimes takes it away from being a real life story and makes it into something of fiction? No, I think, look, you're never going to. One thing isn't going to change people. There's no question of that. But even if you just make them think a little bit and I suppose Joey O'Callaghan's story was more, it wasn't maybe to change people's drug use, but to just consider, for, for me it was, to consider there's human beings trapped in that world and they can't get out, they can't see a way out. And we're just carrying on with life, walking down the street. We could be walking past a kid like Joey O'Callaghan, not having a clue uh, what's going on in in his life. And... Um, you know, I have met so many people from, you know, involved in gangs. You know, I've met plenty of very high up the ladder criminals, too. And most of them are actually really quite interesting people. And they're there doing what they do for a reason. And maybe understanding why they're there and why they're doing what they do will will evoke change but writing them off as scumbags or I even hate that word to be honest with you as whatever it is we, we write them off as isn't going to help change anything and there is no getting out is there once you're in you know too much to very be very hard to be allowed even mm. if in the justice system in prison you decide to retrain relearn once you come out onto the streets, you're, you're trackable. You're not going to be just let go about your business and get a job in a bank, are you? Well, not everybody's worth the bullet. You know, I mean, there isn't everybody. It's not, it, there is a finite amount of people that crime gangs will consider is worth the risk of an assassination attempt. There's a finite amount of people who will actually, you know, work as a hitman. Like, it's not everybody. Um, and you have to recognise that plenty of people go into prison, realise that they want to change their lives and do. And they often stay on the straight and narrow. And they're extremely important to bring back into the system to help reach out to others. Because it's not the likes of me that is going to make sense when I'm talking to somebody sitting in jail. You know, I'm not going to connect with them. They're not going to connect with me. But somebody who is in their world, who is in their position, will. So there is plenty of people who go straight and, uh, yeah, go and get a job in a bank. Maybe not a bank, I suppose, but <laughs> depending <laughs> on their past history. But they can go into employment. That's difficult for them as well. And I think that's where certain, I think, employers maybe need to open their minds to taking on people who are rehabilitated. I think they're very worthwhile people 
to have around um, other workers, you know? Yeah. And be realise their part in the jigsaw. Yeah. Of, of trying to rehabilitate people. And will we always have greed, money at the centre of things, the allure of power? Are we always going to have corrupt lawmakers, corrupt Gardaí? Are you always going to meet a whistleblower? Is that just in our, our human DNA? Yeah, I mean, look, there was a recent arrest of quite a number of Gardaí who are suspected of passing on information to a drug gang. And money is very corruptible. A lot of people have a price. Some people don't, but there are there's always that fear that there's so much money washing around in that drugs world that people in positions of power are corruptible and that they can be bought. Um, that's a fact. But I think we have to um, stay on top of that. I think the guards are doing a good job there within their own force to to try and stamp that out somewhat. I think uh, as a society, we have to, again, be very aware that people are viable, you know, that drug money is so vast. I mean, you can literally, if you if you wanted to sell drugs today, you could go down and you could put 8,000 in your pocket by the end of the day. And that's as a street dealer. Tax that's free. The, that's that's it. So and you have to get rid of it some way, by the way. I wonder, do they ever get sick of spending? But, you know, I was told a long time ago by a um, very successful criminal that it's all about the money. It's, it's all about absolutely everything that happens, every shooting Every fallout, every feud, every split within every mafia is all about the money. There's no loyalty. There's only loyalty to, to, to cash. And greed seems to feed itself and create more and more greed. And uh, look, as is the same in the corporate world, plenty of people in, in the criminal uh, in criminal, in organised crime have more money than they could ever live to spend ever wish to spend if they handed it around every single person they knew they couldn't spend it in a lifetime and yet they want more and that seems to be human nature because you know you could name off many's a billionaire who's in the same position and yet it comes back then to the inequality and the classism that if you've grown up somewhere where there wasn't much hope for your future where you didn't necessarily think that you were going to have a college education or go down a road that would lead to you making enough money for yourself then you can see the allure of something like that what do you make with the public's obsession with crime I can't get on board with this the first podcast I ever listened to was Serial the one that came mm. out of America and everybody was sending it around and I was hooked but even now if I was to hear that theme music it makes me feel sick in my stomach it just puts me on edge and every time I hear an ad and I say this with the greatest respect to you sometimes you're involved you know Ireland's top 10 husband killers I'm like who wants to read that who wants to know about the sadness of what goes on in the world what's your take on that well you're a bit of a rarity because lots of people do and it is the probably the most popular genre 
you know, between podcasting in nonfiction, you look at Netflix, you look at Sky and all the series and be the dramatizations mm. are, you, you know, there's a lot of people who are interested in it. Um, there's a big move into the commercialization of crime that's happened both in the States and in the UK. There was only this year they had their first, uh, it's a called CrimeCon. It's a crime conference. And now in the States, what happens is women get together and they go away for the weekend to this crime conference. And there's like loads of people would have these. It's sort of like what you'd see down the RDS, the horse show or something. But all these various industries have their 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 places where you can go and visit. You can actually get a photograph of yourself in a, you know, in a in a um a crime scene. Like a dead body with the yeah. thing around you, yeah. the tape around you. Yeah, you can do that for a selfie picture. You can go along to chats, there's wine and crime and there's all this sort of stuff. If only I could do my hen party all over again. Yeah. I mean, I did get caught up in all the Sophie Tusk on the Plantier oh, documentaries that were out there, yeah. mainly because there was an interview coming up through my work. And I think it is the fascination in what somebody is capable of what happens to somebody what is within human nature to allow them to go down that road and then what are the ripple effects of the people around them be it their loved ones be it their relatives be it people in the village what happens I suppose that's what it is well funny now you should mention that because women tend to be big into these sort of serial killer stories or stories of a victim that's a woman and we we tend to empathize with people we can recognize you know so women are very into those kind of murder stories and stuff and and women aren't really into the organized crime bit and the the gangland bit and which is my gig even though I've also write and do stories about about that other sort of crime as I'd see it. I can see it very clear in my head as two different things. Maybe I'm not making sense there, but for me, there's the organised crime and then there's the other crime, as I'd call it, which are the the sort of domestic murders and unsolved cases and missing women and all that sort of stuff. That maybe weren't as premeditated or or, or Or planned in the same way. Well, well it's just a different type of a crime, Mm. isn't it? It's more Mm. crime of passion. The the gangland, the organised crime is all about the money, as we've said. But for me then... It was a challenge I've had in recent years as being as a woman reporting on that. How do I get women interested in the organised crime stuff? And as we were talking about The Clash of the Clans, the book, I've tried to put myself into that a little bit, into that story and into the narrative as a female journalist working in the world to try and maybe open up the interest of women in it. Is that making sense to you? Yeah, yeah. And you do talk also about the role of of men and women within Mm. crime and in the crime that you report on. It's very much Mm male-led and women seem to know their place. They're the kind of plus ones of the whole thing, which I find really interesting. And, And you're right, at the moment we have a big narrative going on, which I think is a really important discussion to have about female safety and female victims but you're right the story is told very differently we don't necessarily feel the same for the groomed teenager who ends up getting a bullet in the back 
of the head as we do to a woman who is attacked in a park. And I don't we, we don't have to rate victims as to who deserves our sympathy more. But it's just very interesting, the gender roles within crime and how we as receivers of that view it. Well, you see, we've this unrealistic view of it because we, we don't say the likes of the gangland crime, the gang crime, the, you know, the stuff that's going on in underprivileged communities is far more real than the likes of somebody jumping out from behind a bush attacking a woman and, you know, this big murder mystery who who done it thing. Like, OK, that happens. There's a big debate at the moment in the US. Gabby Petito, an influencer who was um, found dead after going on a camping trip with the partner. They were going to record it all for their YouTube channel. And um, she's a young white girl, 22 middle class and America's gone mad for this story. They're following every little bit of the way. And what it's done is ignited the debate into how victims like Gabby Petito are far less the norm than a lot of, say, coloured women of colour that are victims. Um, if you looked at if you look at the percentages of that kind of crime, a random murder of a young white woman, uh, with an education, it may make up a tiny, tiny, tiny percent of the actual murders. So we have this unrealistic because we're so taken to it. And it is a psychological thing. We are we identify ourselves with a particular victim and we have more sympathy for them as a result because it could have been us. Whereas, you know, we're looking at, you know, kids getting drawn into gangs. It's just so far away from our reality that we don't have an ability to actually sit up and take notice of it because it's probably not going to happen to us or our kids. Yeah, it's a privileged position to to sit in or a a tower to look down from. Mm. What about you then? I couldn't really have you on without asking about how much you put yourself on the line to do this. Tabloid journalism is very different, it seems, to the broadsheets. I think there's a lot of snobbery involved in it, but mm. there aren't many political correspondents who are still talking in a way around the legislation which affects what you write about. But I don't think they have the same concern for their personal safety as you do. Mm. And you're you're well known. Your face is well known. Do you go about your daily business looking over your shoulder? Um, I can be a bit odd sometimes, like I kind of will not go to certain places. I wouldn't let my guard down too much if I'm socialising in certain places. I wouldn't probably go socialising. But yeah, just keep an eye, just have to be sensible. But no different really to people who are working in, you know, in many areas of the criminal justice system. You just have to be a little bit careful. I mean, I was talking to a colleague of mine in the north recently, Alison Morris, who's, you know, you kind of think, oh, that's even smaller up there. Belfast is smaller and she's doing the crime beat up there. Um, and we sort of came to an understanding that actually when we started out doing the job, it wasn't about you. You were just a conduit. Whereas now, because of social media and because everybody's been pushed out there, it's almost as if you've become a kind of celebrity type or something or the people know you. People speak to me on the street or they'll shout at me or depending on their humour, if they like what I'm doing, if they don't. 
And that wasn't really part of the contract that I would have felt I signed to start up. I still feel I'm doing what I signed up to do, which is a job and nothing more than that. Um, look, sometimes things can get a bit tricky and there will be threats and stuff, but we just handle them. And there's very clear protocols in place through my employer about what happens. Thankfully, most of the things, nothing comes of them. And, you know, I generally live a normal life, believe it or not. Um, I find if you can, if you can, you know, try not to be personal and try not to be too insulting of people, people sometimes warm to you without particularly wanting to. Yeah, and I, I think you write with heart and you write with empathy behind the cold, hard facts you're reporting on. Mm. And I'd say there's a lot of people you write about that behind it all have a, a respect for you. Do you sleep well at night, Nicola, if you're working on a particularly gruesome story? Will it play over in your mind at night and keep you awake? Yeah, but I think everybody's a bit like that, aren't they, with their work? You know, it's whatever it is that they're they're doing, if they're doing something a little bit stressful or if they have a deadline or if they have something to present people think about it it just is so normal to me you know the kind of stuff I work on and all the rest of that I'm still finding it interesting when I stop finding it interesting I'll stop but um, like I wouldn't stay up at night playing things around in my head any more than I would if I was having a, a tiff with somebody else or you know something was happening in my personal life it's just you get used to anything don't you you know, everything is just seen as a job. Like, I always find it fascinating. I mean, you know, ask an ambulance driver that. Ask a fireman that. And how do they cope? Because they're seeing way worse stuff than the likes of me. Um, what experiences do prison officers have? Do guards have every day? Do solicitors? Do judges? You know, do people working in hospitals? A lot of frontline workers now are offered counselling for mm. particularly harrowing cases. Are mm. you offered that? Do you get that? Dream of going into that because I'd never get off the couch if I started. <laughs> um, but uh, counselling, like a lot of journalists hang out together. And, you know, the reason they do that is probably for counselling reasons. Actually, it's in-house counselling. You know, there's certain conversations we'd have in a newsroom that you just could not have in public because they'd be seen as very dark, very black. But you just have to cope with things sometimes that way. And hanging out with your own, you get all that out, you know. I'd be far more into a gin and tonic than a, a, a session in a... But that's not very PC nowadays, is it, to say that? Oh, we're all entitled to unwind <laughs> in a legal way yeah. if that's how we see fit. Well, I find what you do fascinating and thank you for sitting on my couch and allowing me to pick you apart for a little while Nicola Talent thank you very very much thank you very much thank you for listening to Changemakers if you enjoyed the podcast I would love if you would take a moment to rate review and subscribe it helps other people to find the podcast too take care
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.